this is true, then I should do this. Okay? If this is true, if one, if a statement is true, then there's an application that is relevant, that is good, that is needed. Okay? If you don't learn anything else from our series that we're going through right now, the scriptures are meant to be applied to your life. It's not good head knowledge, it's good application for our life, right? If we don't learn anything else, let's learn that. But I want you to learn how to read the scriptures with that in mind. I want you to learn how to read the scriptures by asking four simple questions that we're using. These are also, in the future, how we would like to set up our DNA groups so that we ask these four questions and that through those four questions, um, we get to dive through the scriptures, apply the scriptures to our lives, speak the gospel to each other. Uh, And then also, you know that as we multiply DNA groups in the future, you know how they operate. You don't have to be a wizard of the word. You don't have to be, if you're a wizard, you're probably not a leader of a DNA group. But you, you don't have to master the scriptures. You don't have to be this great theologian or teacher. You just got to be able to handle these four questions with the scriptures, and then you can host a DNA group, right? Everybody in here is, uh, should see themselves as potential group leaders in the future. That's where our life-on-life discipleship happens. We want you to see yourself as a potential leader uh, in a DNA group. But that is not a teacher. That's simply somebody that throws out the questions. And, and you guys that have been with me on Wednesday night when we're doing with these questions, um, I don't usually tell you what to think, but sometimes I push your buttons to get you to think, right? And, and that's what we do. Stephen gives me a good church answer that uh, a sixth grade Christian would throw out. And I'm like, Stephen, we're not going to accept that. That's not what we're here for. You need to go a little deeper into your heart, you know. Uh, so we don't deal with surface things. We want to go deeper things. And, and that's what it looks like to host a DNA group. That's all it does. That's all it does. Okay, so if then. Uh, it's interesting. We have four kids. Uh, but to teach a four-year-old that he can't run around naked around his sisters. I mean, anybody that's got kids right now, it's like, to me, it blows my mind that that's something we have to teach. You need to put your pants on, put your und- at least your undies, put your undies on before you run around naked around your sisters. And there's this whole conversation that centers around our home constantly about the fact that you can't do that, and we try to communicate why you can't do that, right? But it doesn't always click, and, and you can't shake your booty at your sisters. These are conversations at our house. Don't pull your underwear down and shake your hiney in front of your sisters. We don't do that. We just don't do that. I know you think it was funny, and I may be laughing when I'm telling you this, but we don't do that. We don't do that. Uh, and, 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 and you should step to the other side of the tree so that your sisters can't see you going to the bathroom in the yard. Right? These are conversations. Pee on the other side of the tree so that your sisters can't see you. Right? Constant conversation in our house. It's interesting that we have to do that. And then in reverse, we have to teach our seven-year-old daughter that I know your brothers are running around without a shirt, but we need you to put yours on. Conversation started when she was seven. And still continuing. She still asks, can I take my, at nine years old, well, they don't have theirs on. Why do I have to put mine on? Right? This is a conversation, and, and to me it's interesting uh, that we have to have it. Why is this a difficult teaching? Because in a child's innocence, they don't know the difference between good and evil. In the innocence of a child, they simply don't understand the difference between good and evil. Everything's good. Everything's good in that innocence. They see themselves, as God declared seven times in Genesis chapter 1, good. Seven times in the chapter we read last week, he said, it's good. God spoke it into existence. He looked at it and he sighed and he said, it's good. It's good. Right? And our children, in their innocence, they see it's good. But as a parent, 
We teach through their innocence and say, no, you need to understand not everything's good anymore. What a strange and necessary part of teaching. See, the Genesis 1 world where God created all things by the sound of his voice and he says, it's good. We live in that world and we don't live in that world anymore. It's like we do live in that world, but we don't live in that world anymore. It's the same world, but it's not the same. Does that make sense? It's the same world that he declared as good, but it's, it's not the same as it was in Genesis 1. Because it can be hard to understand and navigate this world and ourselves Uh, We want to uh, begin seeing ourselves through the story of God that is spelled out in the Scriptures. Uh, There's four themes in the story of God. We looked at the first one last week. Creation. Genesis 1, God made everything, and everything was good. We're looking at the second one this week. It's the fall, but just for your future. Uh, The third theme of Scripture is redemption and eventual restoration of all things. So creation, we looked at last week. This week, we want to teach ourselves to see ourselves. Because when we see ourselves in light of the Scriptures, in light of the story of God, then it will change our thinking and our what? Our doing. Changes our thinking and our doing to see ourselves in light of the story of God. I hope that something we talked about last week changes your thinking, which therefore changes what you do. If God really created it that way, then how would we live? Right? So this week we want to look at Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3 in a section of Scripture, a theme of Scripture that we often refer to as the fall of the fall of mankind, the fall into sin, whatever we want to call it. Genesis 3, turn there with me. And we're going to read Genesis 3 together. Genesis 3. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter again. And remember, I'm going to ask you four questions after we exit the reading portion. Who is God? What has God done? What does this passage say about our identity, who we are? And then if that's true, how would we live? Those are our four questions. Who is God? What has God done? What's it say about us? And if it's true, how would we live? Four questions we're going to discuss after we read chapter 3. And we're only referencing chapter 3 when we answer those questions. Our brain wants to wander all over the scriptures and avoid what we see in front of us. But I'm going to ask you to avoid all the scriptures you know and just look at what's in front of us and learn to answer these four questions according to the text we see. Okay? Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also took some for her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they saw that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden." So the Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, and more than any wild animal you have moved on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listen to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. I'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. You'll eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins from the man and his wife, and she clothed them, and he clothed them. The Lord God had said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Question number one. According to this passage, according to Genesis 3, who is God? Okay? A disciplinarian. He disciplines... Uh, what other kinds of disciplinarians do we have in our life? Fathers? Teachers? Judges? So how can we, how can we group all those who are disciplinarians into one category? They're all authority, right? And as an authority, he has the right to discipline, okay? God's a disciplinarian or authority. What else? Who is God in Genesis 3? Okay. So the rule giver. Not only does he give them, but as an authority and a disciplinarian, he enforces them. Right? But they came from him. He created the good and the bad, what is right, what is wrong. Okay? What else? Provider, work. Okay. Woo. Yeah, there's a word that we need to tap into in that, and I think we will when we get into the next questions uh, of how he provided even after his authority had been rebelled against and his rules had been avoided. We'll get into that here in a minute, but. What else? Who is God? I'm going to say he's engaging. Yeah, so... 
Yeah, so he's, he's in the garden, walking in the garden, asking questions to those whom he has created, which also says that in Genesis 3 we still see him as creator. But he's engaged in his creation. You know, Wednesday in our men's group, we, 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 we remembered that, uh, that he created all things by the sound of his voice, and, and then he went into that creation, engaged it. He didn't set it in motion and leave it. But he is a creator who is actively involved, engaging in what he has set in motion. Okay. So, companion. Whoop. And that goes with his engagement, but as. Not just engaged to control, but engaged to talk to, converse with, to walk with. It says that he was walking in the cool of the garden as if he expected Adam and Eve to walk with him. Right? Walked side by side with them. Uh, and I think I had one that kind of went with that, and it was present. He was present with Adam and Eve. Um... I'm going to throw another one out. He was gentle. Yeah, gentle. Well, let's... Don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. But, but that, he said forgiving, and that's moving into um, something later. But just the fact that he's gentle, right? When Adam, when he says, where are you? He's like, did you eat the fruit that I told you not to? And Adam's like, yeah, my, my wife made me do it. She tricked me. And then the serpent tricked her. It's like you don't see God, like, jump on him. You broke my rules. I told you not to. He's like, did you do that? And we don't know the tone of the voice, but he asked questions instead of making accusations. How many of us say, I told you not to do that? But he just he gave them the opportunity in a gentle spirit. Did you do that? He questions instead of accuses. And that's an interesting thing to understand about the character and the nature of God. That's a question I have not even thought about. Why is that as an authority or father figure, is God protecting them by not allowing them to eat of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever? Because if they were able to do that, they would live forever in the knowledge of good and evil. And what would that reality look like? They would live, yeah, that's trapped in sin, living forever in that scenario. Has he protected them, guarded them? Was that an act of love that he did? Or an act of discipline? You know, that's interesting. And that's another one that I have. He's a keeper of his word. Right? He's like, I told you not to eat from the tree of good and evil. And I told you that you would die if you did. So now that you have, here's what's going to happen. He didn't say, psych. (laughs) I told you that would happen, but now I'm going to change the rules on you. No, he's a keeper of his word. When he laid down a law and gave the consequences, he followed through with his consequences. Now, if you're a parent, doing this is one of the hardest things to do. Don't do that. If you do, I will spank you. And then your son does that, and then you don't spank them. Number one, that's confusing to your kid And now they think they can get away with murder because mom and dad are not keepers of their word. 
They make promises they don't keep, either for good or bad. That's not God. He's a keeper of His Word. Don't do this. If you do, this will happen. When you did it, now I've got to follow through. And you will die. From dust you came and from dust you'll return. And until that day happens, you're going to work like a dog and you're going to hate it. You're going to want four kids, but after two, you're going to say, ah, that hurts. That's miserable. I don't want any more. It's part of a curse that comes upon us from rebellion against the authority that God is. He's just. He's knowing. He's like, it's funny. Do you think God knew that they ate from the tree? Yet he still asked, "Uh, did you do what I told you not to do? I know you did. I'm just going to see how you respond to my question. Right? It's like he's all-knowing even in this. So the second question. What has he done? What has God done in Genesis 3? Showed his nature. I got a follow up question. Explain your answer. Still what? Okay. How so? another marker in the front pocket of my thing backpack yep either one of those I'm going to say he gave instructions to the man He gave him instructions that would lead to life. He said, do anything you want to. Eat anything you want to. You have dominion over everything, but don't eat from that or you will die. He gave him instructions. He spoke instructions. He didn't leave the man to question or to wonder. Like he spoke and he he made it very clear, right? He gave instructions. Created is that true? Did God create the separation? Well, you can't just say yes or no, no, and and give an explanation. Okay. So Adam and Eve withdrew from God. God never withdrew from them. Do what? Well, that's another thing. He created the opportunity. For them to rebel.
And that's an interesting thing. So let's sit here for a second. He created the tree. He gave the instruction. He said, don't eat from that tree. If you do, you'll die. Blaine just gave us a really good example of maybe us taking teachings and things we've heard and we immediately look at that and we need to tell why. Do we, do we feel that? I mean, it's like, this is God. This is what God's done. I have this inner need to explain why he did what he did. Why do we not just sit there and say, this is God. This is what God's done. Period. Why, why do we have that inner need to explain or justify his actions? Need for control on our end? Let me, um, we do that, but here's, here's my concern. When we create whys to explain what God's done and our why is not according to who he is, then sometimes our why can go way out in left field and it's unbiblical. It's some, I'm not saying what you just said is, but I'm saying sometimes our why becomes unbiblical when we create whys that are not according to the who's. So let's get over here and say he left an option for rebellion and maybe a possibly better process for us to engage in. If I say, why did he leave the option for humanity to reject him? Let me go back to who he is and answer it from there. Well, he made it. He's companion, engaging, provider, rule. You know, just let's keep a really balanced perspective of why God does what he does according to who he is. Because who we are determines what we do. Always does. I believe that about us. Who we believe we are will cause us to do what we do. But I think the same is true for God. If we want to look at what he's done and say, like we all do, why? Let me go back to who he has said he is. And who, who he is, is causing him to do what he does. And I think we'll find cleaner, more precise answers that are sometimes more biblical than us trying to create this big storyline that's not in the story. Okay. Y'all agree or disagree with what I just said? Yes. (laughs) And I'm not saying anything about your explanation. I'm just saying the process. I think the process is really dangerous when we want to create God's why, but our why hasn't been founded in his identity, in his who. He does what he does because of who he is. There you go. It's because I wrestle with what he's doing. I doubt his provisions. I doubt his rules. I doubt that he is present. I doubt that he's protect. I doubt that he's fair. I mean, yeah, that's good honesty right there. 
It's just us and our unbelief. I do believe, but I have unbelief. We all have that, so we're all going to ask questions. Why? Brant, don't do that. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> Him asking why is thinking that I'm unfair. Brant, no, you can't have cookies until me and your mom have eaten dinner. Why? That's not fair. It's his unbelief in my character as a fair father. That's where our wives come from. Let's go back to his identity if we want to find good, solid answers. He has given the instructions that lead to life. He created humanity in innocence. That's what he did. He created humanity, created in innocence. <laughs> and the funny thing is, we were created in innocence, and here we are with four, six, and nine-year-olds trying to teach them good and evil. Right? We were created in innocence. He engaged Adam and Eve in their sin with questions and implications. He engaged them in their sin. What did they do in their sin? We already hit on it. When, when they sinned, between, between them and God, what did they do? They hid. And then they blamed. But then in their sin, what did God do? He engaged showed mercy, sought them. Two different responses. Man sins, man runs from God. Man sinned, God runs to man. So the separation did not come from God, it came from man. Right? Because God pursued him, Adam, even in his disobedience. With questions and implications, not with condemnation. He promised. He made a promise. Anybody see the promise in here? Promise of redemption. He gave us a foreshadow of the next theme of Scripture. Where is it? Okay, that's a different one, but he made a covering. Yes. So let me, let me hit... He just said he made a covering. They made a poor covering. God made a better covering. Right? He, he gave them an animal skin, a sacrifice to cover their sins. The first sacrifice for sin ever in the Scriptures. He does that right there. But back to my original question, he gave us a foreshadow of the redemption. He said that Eve, you're going to have children that are going to be in opposition to the evil one and he not them he will crush the serpent's head who is he it's jesus it's the first prophecy of a savior who's going to come and bring redemption god made a promise in genesis 3 that he would crush the serpent with his seed he made a promise Question three. What does this say about us? What's this passage say about us? Okay. We are rebellious. Okay. Cannot keep simple instructions. <laughs> I mean, just, it doesn't get easy. Don't eat from that tree. One, one job. One job. Not because I made a rule, but because I'm good and fair and honest and loving and compassionate. And, and when I make a rule, in my honesty, my fairness, my compassion, my goodness, my justness, you should love that rule because it's for your own good. Right? But no, we're rebellious. 
I don't know how to spell this, but you know what it means. We're gullible. Did God really say that? Yeah, he did, actually. No, he didn't mean it. We're easily deceived because we're gullible. Easily deceived. Susceptible to deception. What else does it say about us and our nature? We're fearful of consequences. Well, it could be fair. It's God, but... <laughs> fear the Lord. Uh, yeah, that could be fair. Fearful. Well, let's twist that and say fearful of facing our own sin. Yep. My initial response to that, which I've not studied that statement out, but my initial response to that would be that he was bruised and crushed for our iniquities, according to Isaiah 53. He was bruised and crushed. There was a physical pain that came upon Jesus that crushed his body, and bruised his heel, so to speak. If I want to take a tricky question like that and the, the scripture that jumps to mind that could be a good explanation, that's my first one that comes to mind. Um, but I'll study that out with you and see if there's a, a better explanation in the days to come. Okay. Where do you get that? Has he in this text shown forgiveness? Yeah, he, he didn't crush us. But he never promised to crush us. He promised to, that we would die eventually. Things like that. And so Sean says forgiven. We wonder if that's the best word. But at least as we're fearful of facing sin, um, we realize that that's not really a rational fear because he moves in with compassion, mercy, forgiveness, whatever we want to say. Which goes back to saying we're... <laughs> Gullible, easily deceived. I before E except after C. I got that backwards. E before, whatever. Let's get that backwards. Something in there. Uh, let's say because of sin, uh, we have shame. We carry shame. And, and so there was this, like, Genesis 1, he made, created man, man was good, and, and, and it was good. Now, under the curse of sin, the reality of sin, who are we? We are people that carry shame. We are shamed. We are separated from God. Sean already hit on it. We're prone to blame others. Under the curse of sin, our gut reaction, it's their fault. <laughs> nope. Uh, I don't want to face my own sin, so I shift it to make somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Why do we create somebody else's fault? Because I don't want to face it. So I don't want to face it.
Yeah, so let me point theirs out. So it's like going to Walmart. It's what I always, when, when somebody makes this comment, it's like going to Walmart. When I feel bad about myself, go to Walmart. I immediately feel better about myself. It's a state fair. Yeah, right? It's just a comparison game. No, I'm not going there. Prone to blame. Uh, we are in a war. Who are we? We're in a war. As people, we're in a war against a deceiver. Some, one who wants to lie to us, one who wants to trick us, one who wants to deceive us because we are easily deceived and somewhat gullible to his devices. We need to know that we in humanity are in a war and we do not war against flesh and blood. We war against the evil one. We are in a war against a liar, a trickster, a deceiver. That is his schemes. And they work against us who are easily deceived. How do we know they work? We begin to blame others. Right? In this spiritual war against the evil one, one of the biggest causes, the fruit of your tree is fear. What fruit is on the tree of your life? Fear, shame, guilt, uh, blame. If that's the fruit that I have, I have been deceived. I begin to believe lies that are not true. Where did those lies come from? Satan. Now you believe wrong things about the nature of God, the work of God, and you want to shift everything according to the lies you believe. Instead of confessing your sin, believing in forgiveness, believing in the covering that's been made, you shift your sin because you believe lies about who God is and what God does. And now it's their fault. You're in a war. That stuff doesn't happen by accident. That stuff happens because you're in a spiritual war for your life. We should be expectant of pain and sweat. Under the curse of sin, who are we? We are people that need to expect pain and hard work and sweat and just stuff in life. That's who we are. Just expect it. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Right? In this world you'll have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. But that's part of who we are in the curse of sin. Who am I? I am remembered by God and pursued. We already hit on that. The God who makes a covering for my shame, my blame, and the God who has promised victory in this war, I'm remembered by Him. Who am I? So do me a favor. Fill in. If. If what? What's our statement this morning? What's the truth that we've seen this morning? How do you summarize what we've just said? Who is God? What has He done? And who are we? What stands out to you the most so that we can lay that truth in front of us? Speak that to a truth about God's character, God's work, or your identity. What God's character, what's the character that stands out the most about who He is? We said fair. Right? So if God is fair, then what? What's the action or the mindset, the thinking or the doing that follows that statement? How will, the, how will I live this out? If God's fair, then what? And trust? If I trusted, what would I do? 
I can submit. <laughs> I like that one. I will relax. Take a chill pill, dude. Maybe take a pill and relax. I don't know. Just right. What's another one? Give me, give me one of those statements, true statements from what we've hit on this morning. Stands out to you. The work, the person of God, or who we are. If. If God Okay, if God is merciful with me, then I will be merciful with others. Does that capture the same kind of thought process you were talking about? Just trying to use the same vocabulary we've already used. If God's merciful with me and my sin, I can therefore be merciful with others in their sin. He didn't come at me with accusations. He didn't point finger. He didn't blame. He simply came with a desire for understanding through questions. If he treats me that way, then the last thing I'm going to do is go and point fingers, blame, and say, that's your fault. No, I'm going to come to you with questions, seeking understanding, offering mercy. You see how that works? If, if one thing is true, then another thing needs to happen. Right? Yeah. If I am in a war, then what? Draft recruits. If I'm in a war, I'm going to suit up, put on the armor, prepare for battle, quit acting like you're not in a war. Quit acting like blaming others for your problem is a solution. You're deceived by the evil one to think that that's a solution. You've been lied to and you've bought it and you're pursuing it. If you're in a war, suit up for battle. Put on the full armor of God and get up and act like you're in a war. Quit being passive. Be active. Do something. Right? John Piper said it best. I see so few Christians making war. Make war. Because it's already making it against you. Just because you don't engage doesn't mean you're not in it. It means you've already been whooped by it. If it's true, then there's a response to be given. If... God gives clear instruction. <laughs> then what? Live it? Live what? <laughs> Maybe your answer is to do what you know you need to do. Maybe your answer is, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to read his clear instructions, right? I'm going to open up the Word of God. I'm going to seek the face of God. I'm going to seek the heart of God. I'm going, to, I'm going to read the Scriptures, hear the Scriptures, study the Scriptures until I know what the heck to do. Many of you already know what to do, and you just think it's not that clear, but it is. It is. You're being deceived into thinking that the instructions of God are complex and deep and Hard to understand. No, that's the muddiness of Satan because you're in a war. He's made it clear. Did God really say? Yes, He did. And He meant you to live by it. Those questions 
of unbelief are not from God. They're not. This is how we do it. If. Fill in the blank with the truth about who God is, what He's done, who He says you are. Then. Learn to apply that truth with real life action. Real life implications about your thinking and your doing. This is how it operates. This is how we read the scriptures. This is how we speak the gospel over each other's lives. I want to make one last observation. In the end of chapter 3, he says this. Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and eat forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and flaming, whirling sword east of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. He has separated us from the tree of life that we may not take it and eat and live forever. He has guarded the way to the tree of life. What does John 14, 6, what does Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. He has guarded the way, and then Jesus comes and says, I have become the way. All who take of me will live forever. Eat. Be satisfied. I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. That's the redemption that comes in our brokenness. That's the eternal life that comes in our mortality. We'll look at that in a couple weeks as we move to the next theme, redemption. I want to pray for us, and these guys come lead us in one more song.